So I'll, uh, I'll say good morning to you all again, whether you're here in the room. I know we have some folks who are watching online. Welcome. Great to see you all here. Some of you I know are here for the very first time, family, friends, visiting for the baby dedication. Uh, but whatever brings you here, welcome. It's great to have you all here. Um, I was thinking about what I was going to talk on today, and it, it actually took me back to, to my wedding, because I remember leading up to the wedding, uh, Casey, my wife-to-be, there were a lot of things she was nervous about, you know, the, the dress, the flowers, the, uh, the ceremony itself, you know, there's a lot. Um, for us guys, you know, we don't really get too nervous, there's not really a lot that we're thinking about, they just say, you know, my fiance Casey, she said, you just have to be at the church at this time, and that was it, my fear was making sure I was there at the right time, but I remember there was something that got me a little bit anxious, and that was um, the best man's speech. I was a little bit nervous because I knew this friend of mine. I knew the kind of guy he was. I didn't know what kind of stories he was going to tell about me. And uh, so after the ceremony, everything kind of calmed down a bit. I was kind of a bit anxious thinking, okay, what's this guy going to say? And, and uh, my fears all came true when he, uh, he, he stood up and uh, he was wearing this hat that was fashioned on um, the hats that some people wear in Australia. If you've seen this hat here, uh, they wear them in Australia with the corks hanging down um, Obviously, being English, I assumed you all knew what this hat was. I talked to a few people at first, so I was like, I've never seen that hat in my life before. So the reason they wear that is because the flies are so bad in Australia that the corks kind of keep them away from your face. Um, out Probably more in the, the countryside out there. But... Um, he was wearing a hat like that, but instead of corks, there were tea bags hanging all around his hat. And he says, now, if you know Dave Jane, you know he drinks tea, and he likes this hat, because at any point, he could just pull one off and put some hot water on it, and, and it just kind of went on from there, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be bad. But um, the truth is, as fearful as I was, he probably was a little bit more fearful, knowing that he was about to stand up in front of a big group of strangers and make a speech. And if ever you, any of you have ever been a best man, or even had to give any kind of speech, you high school or in any kind of situation, it can be kind of nerve-wracking. But especially, I think, for the best men, because they can just jump on YouTube and search best man speech, as I did this week, and there's a lot of good ones out there. If I came across some really funny ones, but I think the one that touched me the most, I, I wish we could watch it all. We're going to watch just a minute, of, a minute of it here this morning, because it's a really cool best man speech. Check this out. Hello, everyone. My name is Sam Waldron. I am the best man. I am the best man to the best brother that I could have ever asked for. My brother Jonah has been there for me my whole life. He is my best friend. He is my hero. I'm so honored to stand here as your best man, Jonah and Maddie, but I am also terrified. <laughs> you see, I have autism. My autism can make me terribly scared to interact with people, let alone give a speech in front of 170 of them for Pete's sake. But there is one person in the world I would do this for, Jonah Waldron. Check that. There are two people in the world I would do this for, Maddie and Jonah Waldron. First for you, Maddie, welcome to our family. As you already know, our family is like a good fudge, mostly sweet but with a bunch of nuts. You have known us for years now and we still went through with this whole thing. 
you are committed or you should be committed. Either way, you have successfully married the second most handsome Waldron. Congrats, sister. It's a shame to cut it off there because he just gets better ready. He's, he does brilliant. But as I was watching that speech and I was thinking about it, and maybe it took us back to our wedding day, there's everything that goes up to the wedding. There's the build-up, there's the preparation, then there's the ceremony itself, which is an amazing affair, and everyone comes to see it. And then following the ceremony, we get to kind of relax a little bit, have a meal together. And then I love the fact that there's the speeches. The best man comes up and, and he kind of celebrates the day, celebrates the couple, what brought them together. You know, it's very emotional. In fact, in that one, you could see the, the bride and groom kind of wiping their eyes as they saw their brother and brother-in-law giving this beautiful speech. And it, it elicited a very emotional response. And it got me thinking about what I want to speak about today because we've been talking about Nehemiah. And if you're not familiar with the person Nehemiah, he lived about two, two and a half thousand years ago, about four or five hundred years before the birth of Jesus. And he was a Jew who was living outside of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem's been destroyed. And he gets news of this and decides, I'm going to go back and help rebuild the walls of the city. And really, for many of us, if we've heard of Nehemiah, that's how we know him. That's what he's famous for, was rebuilding the walls. And like a good wedding, the entire story of Nehemiah so far is built up to the grand event of seeing the walls rebuilt and the gates put back in place. And you'd think that would be a great place to end the story. That would be the, the climax of the story. But in actual fact, this morning, as we close out the series, we're going to find out that there was one more thing that happened. There was actually a speech that took place. And much like that speech in that wedding, this speech provoked a very emotional response. And we're going to discover that actually this speech and the response of the Israelites was probably even greater than the walls themselves being rebuilt. So like I said, if you've not um, been here for the last few weeks or if you're not familiar with the story of Nehemiah, he's, he's gone back to Jerusalem and the walls are laying in, in rubble and he uh, is a fantastic leader. He manages to get everybody involved, you know, not just the builders, I mean everybody in surrounding areas. He gets them all on board and in a miraculous 52 days, they're able to rebuild all of the walls of Jerusalem. Over the last few weeks, we've learned about opposition that he faced, how he overcame that, how God answered prayers miraculously, how he was able to raise up people and keep them working, even under the threat of danger. There's so much we can learn about Nehemiah. And like I said, you'd think that just the rebuilding of the walls would be the best part of the story until we get to what happens at the very end of the story. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read that this morning together. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1 says that all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So Nehemiah says, hey, we're not done yet. The walls are built, but I need everyone to meet in the city. We're going to get Ezra. He's a religious leader. He's going to come out, and he's going to read to all of us here this morning the law of Moses, the book of the law of Moses. So basically, the book of the law of Moses was the, what we now know as the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Genesis, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
These five books are a really important part of the Old Testament, a really important part of the uh, Jewish history because it tells of God's relationship with the people of Israel, how he rescued them from slavery, their wanderings in the wilderness, how he met with them and gave them the Ten Commandments, the promises he made, and how he eventually established them in a new place that would become their new home. So very important writings. So much so that still today, these five books of the Old Testament are incredibly important to Jewish people. You may have actually heard of them referred to as the Torah. We've got a picture here of a, a modern-day manuscript there, the Torah. And still today in synagogues around the world, Jews will gather together and read aloud from the Torah. That's how important this section of the Bible was. And Ezra read to the entire city from this book. Verses two to three. On October the 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which had included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gates from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. So basically, they're having a church service. Right there in the middle of Jerusalem, Ezra climbs up on this, this platform and he starts to read the book of the law and men, women, even children gathered to hear him speak. And did you see how long this service lasted? From early morn till noon. So I thought I'd truly give you a feeling this morning of what it must have been like back then. So for the next two hours and 45 minutes, I'm going to speak. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But for hours, he read from the book of the law. So the next few verses go on. We won't read them because they talk about a lot of people's names. But basically, they're introducing us to 13 other people, some Levites uh, who stood on the platform with him. The Levites were the people whose responsibility it was to help um, explain what the law meant, to help lead within the church. And here's what it says they did in verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. So it's not clear exactly what they were doing. Scholars believe one of two things was happening. Either um, as Ezra was reading, he was reading in Hebrew, but the Jews, having been gone from Israel for so long, had kind of started to adopt other languages of other areas, and maybe they didn't understand Hebrew, and therefore the Levites had to literally translate. It could be that, or it could be that they did understand what Ezra was speaking, they understood what they were hearing, but the Levites were there to help them apply what was being read, to explain what God meant when he said this to Moses or when this happened in their history. Either way, what I love about this image is that there was a time when Ezra stood at the front and read aloud, and then there was another time when the Levites would move around the crowd and engage with them and discuss and apply. And here's why I love that. We've talked about this a lot at Connect, but here at Connect, we, we happen to believe that circles are better than rows. Circles are better than rows. And here's what we mean by that, if you've not heard this phrase before. Um, we love Sunday mornings, and we love having you here to hear God's Word, but the reality is you're sat in rows, and I'm speaking aloud. So outside of Sunday mornings, we have opportunities for people to get more connected in groups, 
whether it be in somebody's home, here on a Wednesday night, we've had some midweek groups that have met. And the great thing is that in those groups, we meet in circles instead of rows. We don't have any Levites, but we've got some great leaders who lead those groups. And in those groups, there's in a circle some discussion that takes place. I remember talking to a young lady who signed up to be in one of these groups a few weeks ago, and she said to me, I'm so looking forward to these groups because when I leave here on a Sunday morning, I have so many questions. Every time I hear you speak, I can think of all these questions I want to ask. And she was one of the ones that told me once the groups started how much she's enjoying it because she gets to sit in a group with other people and they get to ask one another these questions and, and process this together. And that's exactly what's happening here with the Levites, that they're, they're gathering together and they're, they're hearing the word read, but then they're applying it to their lives. And listen to the impact it had on the people as they heard it and began to understand the words that were being read to them. Verse nine says, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep. So obviously the people are very moved by this reading. Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now, we don't have quite as much weeping here on a Sunday morning. Uh, sometimes I hear of people crying, saying, will he ever stop? <laughs> but something was happening as Ezra was teaching and reading from the book of the Lord that was eliciting this response of brokenness and mourning. And, and I think it was because as they heard the words read, they realized that um, they were listening to the law that God had put in place and the um, principles he'd put, and they realized we've fallen so far short. We've missed the mark by so much. And that realization caused them to be sad and to mourn and weep. But Nehemiah, I love this. He says, hey, there'll be a time for weeping. There'll be a time for mourning. But right now, we need to celebrate. Because the law isn't there just to make us feel bad for what we've done wrong. No, 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 no. The law is there to tell you about all the great ways that God has blessed your ancestors in the past. The great ways that God has provided for your ancestors in the past. The great things that God has done for your ancestors in the past. And we're going to celebrate because that same God wants to do the same things for us today. He wants to continue doing these great things. This is a time of celebration. So that's what they did. Instead of mourning, they decided to have a feast and celebrate. On October the 9th, the next day, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and Levites, they met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. See, as they're studying together with Ezra, they're realizing, wow, this is a really important tradition that's kind of gone by the wayside over the years. We'd forgotten about this. The celebration that they were a part of on the calendar uh, back in the fall of that year was something called the, um, the Feast of Tabernacles. This happened every year, and it was a celebration of God's provision at harvest time. It was also a time to remember how God had rescued them from slavery. So, so they were aware of the Feast of Tabernacles. But what they'd forgotten until hearing the book of the law read, until studying it in detail, was there was a time that during the Feast of Tabernacles, 
people would set up small shelters. And for a week during this feast, they would live in these shelters to kind of remind them of how their ancestors had traveled through the wilderness, living in shelters before one day finally arriving to this, this land, Israel, that would become their permanent home. They realized that occasionally over the years, some people had celebrated this, but for the most part, it had gone by the wayside. And now the whole city decides we need to bring back this tradition. Verse 16, so the people went out and they cut branches and they used them to build shelters on the roofs of their houses, in their courtyards, in the courtyards of God's temple, or in the squares just inside the water gate and the Ephraim gate. So everyone who had returned from captivity, lived in these shelters during the festival. And they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. This was a great citywide celebration that went on. Everyone was involved, building these shelters everywhere they could. It was such an important way to celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles that still, hundreds of years later, Jews around the world, they still remember this festival. You can see synagogues and um, maybe even Jewish businesses where they'll set up shelters like this. Modern day, they'll set up a shelter like this to remember this Feast of Tabernacles. You see, up until this point, the story of Nehemiah had been this amazing adventure of seeing a city's walls rebuilt and restored, despite all kinds of opposition. But in this last part of the book, as this speech is being read, as these people are, are living in these shelters, celebrating all the good things that God has done, we realize it wasn't just a wall or an ancient city that was being restored in Jerusalem. The people of God were being restored. As they heard this history being read to them, they realized who they truly were. They were going back to their roots. They were remembering how great God was, how much he loved us, how much we've been separated and pushed apart over the years, how all this tragedy that we experienced has, has taken away from the very truth of who we all are. And I think this is the true miracle of the story of Nehemiah. Not that the walls were rebuilt, but that their lives were rebuilt. And again, just this story alone will be a great reason for us to celebrate this morning as we look back and think, wasn't it great what God did with Nehemiah? Isn't it great to, to hear that story thousands of years later and realize, wow, what an amazing God he is and how he worked with the people of Israel. But here's the, here's the great thing, I think, about reading a story like that. You see, I believe God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same God that we see um, interacting with the people of Israel as Ezra read from the book of the Lord, that same God is here this morning wanting to interact with us. I believe that same God is here this morning wanting to change our lives just the same way as he changed the lives of the people of Israel in Nehemiah's time. I believe that same God who helped them rebuild the walls and more importantly, rebuild their lives wants to help rebuild the broken walls in our lives this morning. Restore us to who he has always wanted us to be. And from looking at the way that this took place in Nehemiah chapter eight, I think there are two ways that we can see this happen today in our lives. 
The first is that we learn from Nehemiah that his word brings change. God's word brings change. Whether it's hearing it preached about here on a Sunday morning or discussed together in a circle on a Wednesday night, whether it's yourself in your study or your bedroom or your living room, reading it yourself, reading it on a Bible app, I think God's word still today brings change. Every time we look into the word of God, it's an opportunity for us to learn more about God. But you know what? It's not just an opportunity to learn more about God. It's an opportunity to learn more about us. In the New Testament, a guy by the name of James makes it clear that that's the case. He, he talks about reading the word and studying the word, but listen to what he says in James chapter one, verses 22 through 25. He says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's kind of like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. I love this analogy that James uses of the word of God being like a mirror. I think it's perfect. Because think about it, we still have mirrors today and they're, they're wonderful. But have you ever been in a situation where you've, you've stood in front of a mirror and maybe you're just kind of checking your hair, you know, checking your clothes and, and you kind of smile and in that instance you just see that big bit of food right between your teeth. <laughs> Suddenly that mirror is your enemy because it has revealed this big black piece of lettuce there. And then, as bad as that is, it gets worse when you start to go through in your mind when you ate what is in your teeth. And you realize it's 4.30 in the afternoon and it was noon when you ate that salad. <laughs> so now you're very aware that this piece of lettuce has been between your teeth for the world to see for at least four and a half hours now. And now you're thinking about all the people you've spoken to. That train ride you took, that grocery store checkout line where everyone had seen it and no one told you. <laughs> and you're mortified. And here's the thing, when you smile and see that in your teeth, that's not when the problem begins. That's just the revelation of the problem. You realize this problem began four and a half hours ago when you were eating that salad. And James is saying that's kind of how the word of God is. There may be something in your life that's amiss and you may have no idea until one day, like a mirror, you read the Word of God. You read the Bible. And you read something about forgiveness or love or anger or grace or whatever it might be. And as you read it, like being exposed to something stuck in your teeth is like being exposed to something in your life and you realize, wow, I'd never considered that before. That's actually something in me that probably needs to change. And then James challenges us, doesn't he? He says, you can, you can do two things. You can walk away and ignore it and forget what you ever looked like. Or you can look deep into the mirror and say, I want to change that. I want to make that right. That's what the Israelites did when Ezra read the law to them. They didn't just sit and listen passively. They mourned, they wept, they celebrated. They changed when they heard the book of the law of Moses read. And I think 2,000 years later, God still wants to see us change as we learn more about him through Scripture, as we learn more about ourselves through Scripture. 
But it's not just his word that brings change. There's a second thing, because as I said, at this point, I don't think it was about the walls anymore. The story of Nehemiah has kind of transitioned a bit, and now, instead of the walls, their identity was being rebuilt and renewed. The walls were rebuilt, and now, through the teaching of Ezra, their own identity was being rebuilt, restored, renewed. His word brings change, but his word also reminds us of who we are. And I think that's just as true today as it was in the time of Nehemiah. Do you remember when it said that the Israelites, uh, uh, in their booze, they hadn't celebrated like that since the days of Joshua? So Joshua lived a thousand years before Nehemiah. So they're hearing a story from a thousand years ago thinking, we used to do that. We should go back to doing that. We should remember why we did that and how we can celebrate who God is and what he's done in our lives. Because that's who we are. That's our identity. All this destruction and famine and captivity and war and being taken into exile, it's taken everything away. We've forgotten who we once were. And back in Jerusalem with the walls restored, hearing the law read, God was reminding them who they actually were. They were God's chosen people. And God's word, the Bible, can have the same effect on us today. As we read it and understand it and hear it talked about on a Sunday and discuss it in small groups, we start to understand more of who we actually are in the eyes of God. His creation gets to experience who the creator says we are. And much like the Israelites, we've been through our own war and famine and drama in our lives that may have taken us away from who we truly are in the eyes of God. We may have been through situations in our life and and we start to see ourselves differently than the way God sees us. People may have said things about us. Maybe things have happened in our life and it's changed our view of ourselves. And God so desperately wants to restore our identity so that we can see who we are in him. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, the author Philip Yancey tells a lovely story. It's a fictional story and it's his interpretation of the prodigal son, the story that Jesus tells about the son who ran away. And in Philip Yancey's story, it's about a young girl, a teenage girl who grows up in a family just in Michigan, Traverse City, Michigan. And in the book, he tells this story about how this teenage girl, she was kind of a little rebellious, always pushing the line and she has some very strict parents and maybe because of how strict they were, that made her wanna just rebel just a little bit more. There was always tension, there was always back and forth until finally as she was in her late teens, she said, you know, I've had enough of this. My parents are just spoiling me from having any fun, they're just too restrictive, I'm out of here. She runs away from home and she heads to Detroit, the big city where she hears that there's all sorts of fun to be had. And when she gets there, it's everything she imagined it would be. It's this wonderful city with these great people. She gets to spend time with them and she's out every night partying and celebrating and just having a great time. And she just loves it. And she realizes this is what my parents were stopping me from being able to do. This is why I was right and they were wrong because I now know how much fun can be had when I don't have to follow their oppressive and restrictive rules. But Yancey says in the story that after a while, she discovered that it actually took a little bit more to get that same high, a little bit more to get that same buzz. 
And the next day, the lows were a little bit lower. And this continued on. And it started to take a toil on her life. She started to have some health problems and some sickness. She couldn't work. And before long, she found herself living on the streets. And what had been a great experience just turned sour really quick. Now, here she was, homeless, scared, living on the streets. And in a moment, she realizes, you know, this is stupid. There's a home for me back in Traverse City. But I'm just not sure if they would ever take me back. So at the lowest of lows, she puts a call into her parents. The voicemail picks up on the answer machine. She leaves a message and says, hey, here's the thing. My life's a mess. It's, a, it's in ruins. I'm going to get a bus back to Traverse City on Friday. And if you'll take me back, I'll be there. But I understand if you won't. I'm sure I broke your heart. I'm sure I've closed that door between me and you. So if I get off the bus and you're not there, I'll understand. I'll get back on the bus and I'll continue on north to Canada, maybe try and start a new life up there. And on the bus she gets for what's going to feel like the longest journey of her life as she just imagines the worst case scenarios. Finally, the bus arrives at that bus station in Traverse City late at night. She gets off to walk into the bus station and I'll read from the book as Yancey describes it. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she actually sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and even her grandmother. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of cheers and well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm so sorry. I know, but he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. Because there's a banquet waiting for you at home. And in that modern telling of the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son, the same application is there. That this girl had been gone so long, she'd forgotten who she was. That life in the city and on the streets had robbed her of her identity. But there in that moment, as she got to meet again with the father, she remembered, I'm his daughter, who he loves. Her identity was restored. It was like the Israelites when they listened to the words of Ezra, reminding them of who they actually were as God's chosen people. I think there's no better experience than when we see ourselves the way God sees us. Because God loves us so much. He celebrates when every one of us finds our way home to him. The author and theologian Henry Nguyen put it this way. He said, God rejoices not because the problems of the world have been solved, not because all human pain and suffering have come to an end. No, God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. That's what the Bible says. That when just one of us who was lost returns home to be with the Father, God rejoices. That's what we prayed for Remy this morning is that one day there will come a time when she knows 
that same relationship with her father God. Not because her parents and her grandparents have brought her up to love Jesus, but because she herself understands who she is, her identity in Christ, how loved she is by Father God. Because like the Israelites who went through all those problems, she'll have situations in her life, voices in her life, things that will happen that will try and undo that. But we prayed that that point will come where she understands, no, this is who I am. And maybe for some of us this morning, it's a time of remembering. It's a time of having our identity restored. Because in this series, we've talked about prayer. We've talked about following a vision that God's given us. We've talked about his miraculous provision in our lives. We've learned from Nehemiah all these things. We've learned what it looks like to overcome obstacles. And all of these were great spiritual lessons to learn. And there was so much we could learn from the life of Nehemiah that was applicable in our lives. But none, in my opinion, are greater than the importance of discovering who we are in God's eyes. Discovering our true identity in the way that the Israelites did that day as the book of the law of Moses was read to them. My prayer is that today, thousands of years later, as you've heard this morning from Scripture, that God loves you so much, that His Word still has the power to change today. And that not only does God love you so much, but He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to love Him too. And I hope and pray, if Nehemiah challenged you on anything through this series, is to say, God, I want to step into that relationship with you. I want to discover what it means to be your precious son or daughter. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for the ability to look back throughout Scripture at these amazing men and women of God, how you interacted with them, how your um, amazing provision took place throughout the, all these different stories in the Old and New Testament. But the great thing is, Lord, that even if that was all that happens, we could still stand here this morning and celebrate you saying, God, you're so amazing with what you did for Nehemiah 2,000 years ago. Just that alone is enough for us to sit in awe of who you are and your hand in history. But the great thing is, Lord, is that I believe we serve a living God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this isn't just a story that impacted people 2,000 years ago. This is a story that could impact us this morning because the same God wants us to experience that same revelation of what it means to truly understand who we are in your eyes. So Lord, don't let anyone leave here this morning, anyone who's watching online, miss out on experiencing exactly who we are in your eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.